everybody, welcome back to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. I'm your host, Ben Pagolsky. Today's guest is someone that I personally sought out when I was looking for someone who could maybe start to decode, detangle, and demystify all the confusion around cardiac health. We've been told that this vaccine that we're taking can negatively impact cardiac health. Unfortunately, we've had a lot of great bodybuilders pass away lately. And I know there's a lot of bodybuilders or aspiring bodybuilders or retired bodybuilders listening to this podcast. So I wanted to go out and find someone that I thought was a great authority and able to convey the messaging around what we need to be doing to optimize cardiac function. And so we found Dr. Michael Twyman, who's our guest today to talk about optimization of heart function, cardiac function. And now it's not an, an encyclopedia breakdown. This is not a super deep conversation around uh, all the medical terminology. This is something that's highly actionable for you guys that you can ultimately take away and go, okay, what do I actually need to do to make sure that my heart is optimized? Now, he does also say that once the damage is, is there, it's not the easiest thing in the world to reverse it. However, I tend to disagree. I tend to believe that anything done in extremes uh, can help. Now, what that means in, in my language is if you're someone who is already experiencing some type of negative implication of heart function, which also, by the way, expresses an erectile dysfunction. Uh, so if you're having problems getting you know, your penis hard, you may also be having some heart problems. So if you're someone who does that, it's really important that you don't just try to mask it and throw something at it to make it, you know, oh, it works for now. You got to reverse it. And guys, unfortunately, I know a lot of you guys want to build muscle, but the way to, to avoid it is to do some fasting, to get your body into a catabolic state so it can start chipping away at those uh, ultimate plaques, or maybe it can start improving the elasticity of the arterial walls by doing a lot more long duration cardio. So guys, even though that doesn't seem like the sexiest thing for guys who want to be big, jacked, and tan, we ultimately need to live to be able to express how big, jacked, and tan we are. And so it's not just about big, jacked, and tan, it's about lean, healthy, and muscular. So uh, don't forget to do your cardio. Don't forget to listen to this podcast. And don't forget to support our sponsors for today, Organifi. We're going to find green, red, and gold specific to this podcast, guys. And if you listen to their podcast we did recently with Dr. Brandy, so you'll know Organifi Red is an absolute essential in everyone's nutrition plan, especially men 35 plus who want to extend erectile function and heart function well into your 90s and beyond. Uh, it's something you need to support the nitric oxide system. I eat berries like it's my job. Probably 20% of my calories come from berries. So I do also consume the reds, but I'll also consume just huge amounts of berries because I know that red berries, blueberries, dark berries, and beets are our best ways. And also ultimately some green leafy vegetables are our best ways to get more nitric oxide into our system to support our cardiovascular function, ultimately this nitric oxide system. So uh, I hope you enjoy today's podcast. Don't forget to support our sponsors at Organifi.com slash muscle. That's O-R-G-A-N-I. F-I, Organifi.com slash muscle. Head over there now to get hooked up with 20% off. You don't want to miss it, guys. And if you're not already taking the green, throw that in there too, because it's definitely just one of these things that I suggest ubiquitously. And again, you don't need to take it for the rest of your life, but definitely go in cycles of taking it. Take it now. Uh, make sure you optimize getting these micronutrients, getting these adaptogens, heal your body, especially in these uh, you know, post-holiday season. It's a really good time to support the overall health of your immune system and the overall health of your cellular system. So enjoy the podcast with Michael Twyman. I'm Dr. Michael Twyman. I'm a board-certified cardiologist. I'm hailing from St. Louis, Missouri. I did all my training here at St. Louis University. Had a slight detour for the uh, U.S. Navy. I was an internist for them for four years, taking care of mostly the Marine recruits over at Paris Island in South Carolina, and then 
returned to do my cardiovascular training. I completed that in 2012 and have been out in practice since that time. And then really fell down the rabbit hole of, you know, getting to the root cause of why people were developing atherosclerosis or plaque in their arteries. So I've treated hundreds, if not thousands of heart attacks in my career. And it's, you know, very satisfying to help somebody at that stage. But I ended up getting more interested in trying to prevent it from happening in the first place. And that took a little bit more uh, of my time. So eventually I decided to start my own practice uh, about two years ago. So I could really uh, focus on just the prevention side of things. Thank you. That's wonderful. So why do people develop um, or, or ultimately have heart attacks? Why does it develop atherosclerosis or atherosclerosis? So atherosclerosis is a common uh, disorder. I mean, it's still the number one thing that takes out people. You know, every 40 seconds, somebody has a heart attack in the United States, and there's over 800,000 heart attacks a year. Uh, so plaque is common, and you need to go looking for it. So, you know, maybe you thought that, you know, a heart attack was caused by having like a artery that just fills up like a sewer pipe. And also now you got a hundred percent blockage and that's what a heart attack is, where it's actually more that the vessel wall itself is inflamed and been damaged over time. And it's kind of like having a pimple on the wall of the artery, an abscess. And over time, if that little pimple grows and grows and grows, but there's damaged cholesterol and different cellular debris in there, if that little abscess pops, spills out the damaged cholesterol and different immune things to the bloodstream, the blood coagulates or clods, and that's what actually causes the heart attack because mm. now you're blocking all the nutrients and oxygen downstream to the tissues that needed those things. Oh, very, very interesting. So what typically leads to things like that happening? So I know, let's just like talk about some basic dietary stuff, right? Because you hear myths or what you can maybe tell or true is a myth. Like cholesterol is bad, saturated fat is bad, you know, high fat diets are bad. Grains cause inflammation. Like, you know, you hear all these things. So in your experience, what do you see as being maybe the greatest contributor, maybe if you don't know how, how well up to date you are with the data or just your experience in general. So it all actually starts with endothelial dysfunction. The endothelium is the inner lining of your arteries. It's one cell thick. And if you stripped out your endothelium from your arteries, you'd have the surface area of six tennis courts. So your endothelium is the protective coating that prevents stuff that's floating through the lumen where the blood is flowing from the wall itself. And if the endothelium gets scratched up, and that's when plaque is more likely to develop. So all the things you mentioned, could saturated fats cause it, could high cholesterol cause it, can, but you have to first have endothelial dysfunction. And so the endothelium releases something very important called nitric oxide. Nitric oxide is a short-lived gas. Nitric oxide causes the muscle and the artery to relax. So that improves blood flow, that improves blood pressure. But the nitric oxide also acts like a nonstick surface. So then things don't stick to the blood vessels to begin with. To your question about cholesterol, Cholesterol is neither good nor bad. It's just not good to have cholesterol building up in the walls of the artery. So it is a myth. There's no such thing as good cholesterol. There's no such thing as bad cholesterol. There's just cholesterol. And every cell in your body needs cholesterol. Without cholesterol, you die. So you use your cholesterol to make your sex hormones, to make your bile acids, to digest your fats, to make your cell membranes. So cholesterol is something that's needed by every cell in the body. Most of the cells make their own supply but the liver is the production factory for it. So you make these things called particles. The particles fill up full of cholesterol, triglycerides, which are mostly energy, different vitamins and different things called phospholipids, which are building blocks for the cells. And those particles are made in the liver. They get shipped out through the bloodstream. So if they stick to the walls of the artery, they're more likely to drop off their cargo in the walls of the artery than to drop them off in your muscle. So you want to go looking at the particles because the cholesterol is important, but it only matters where that cholesterol gets deposited. Very cool. So what are the, the root causes of this endothelial dysfunction? Typically, it's inflammation. Uh, it can be you know, high insulin, high glucose. You know, they, 
on the outside of the endothelium, there's something called the glycocalyx. It's like this gel coat. If the gel coat gets damaged, then the endothelium is more likely to get impaired. And the gel coat can get damaged by, you know, a poor standard American uh, diet, you know, lack of exercise, sleep apnea, chronic infections, chronic heavy metal exposure. So there's a couple hundred different things that can damage the glycocalyx, but the downstream effects is that you stop making as much nitric oxide and things start sticking to the arteries. So talk to me about nitric oxide, because I hear this happening in like multiple different directions, right? So there's, you know, I'll, I'll let you kind of go down the path of like the food, uh, the food uh, uh, factors and then supplemental factors. And I think there's different pathways and love to have you maybe dissect that for us. So also the, the thing is that, you know, nitric oxide is mostly good that, you know, it won the, the Nobel prize in uh, 1998 for its discovery, but nitric oxide can also have some deleterious effects where if it's found in the wrong places, but from a cardiovascular standpoint, you want to have healthy levels of nitric oxide. Again, the nitric oxide causes the arteries to dilate and also prevents stuff from sticking to them. And for guys, you know, they're concerned about, uh, you know, erectile performance. That's mostly a nitric oxide story. So the, you know, the little blue pills that works on the nitric oxide pathways by keeping nitric oxide around longer to dilate the blood vessels. So there's generally two pathways to make nitric oxide. Uh, one of them is called the, you know, L-arginine, the L-citrulline pathway. That pretty much dominates, you know, when you're under 40 years old. And when the L-arginine converts to L-citrulline, nitric oxide's kicked off. Uh, or just release, I should say. Um, but after the age of 40, you start becoming more uh, dependent on nitric oxide from a salivary production method. So when you eat your beets and greens, you get those inorganic nitrates. The bacteria in your saliva break those things down to nitrites. You swallow that. And then if you have acid in your stomach, the conversion happens and will make it into nitric oxide, the gas, and it diffuses through the, uh, the walls of the stomach. So for people who use a lot of mouthwash, or they're drinking a lot of water with heavy fluoride in it, you mess up the bacteria population in your saliva and they can't make that initial conversion. And then people get stuck on acid-blocking medicines like the you know, proton pump inhibitors. They don't have stomach acid, so they don't make as many enzymes. You need acid in your stomach to you know, digest proteins and enzymes are just a form of protein. Uh, so if you don't have the right enzymes, you can't make that conversion to nitric oxide. So... Uh, not uncommonly, you find something in somebody's environment and you withdraw it and their nitric oxide levels improve. But that's kind of the dietary pathways. But as you know, in your world, exercise is very important. You release nitric oxide from your muscles um, when you're stimulating. And then one field I'm kind of passionate about is circadian biology. One reason I'm wearing the kind of blue blocking glasses um, is your skin is the solar panel. And when you're outside in the sunlight, the UVA rays from the sun hit the skin and cause that nitric oxide to be released from the blood vessels directly. Why at 40 does our arginine citrulline pathway start to diminish? Uh, I think it's thought that it's more that the, uh, the enzyme efficiency really goes down. It's not that somebody is really deficient in L-arginine, it's just that they can't easily convert it over to L-citrulline. So would that just be like an age thing? Is it a cellular health thing? Is it a mitochondrial health thing? Is it dietary thing? What, what's the you know mechanistic underlying reason there? Because my brain just goes to, well, how do we not make that happen? Yeah, I honestly don't know the exact you know multifactorial reason why the, the enzyme efficiency goes down over time. You know, it could be you know like you said, you know, people's stomach acid may not be optimized at that point. Um, you know, there are different you know, supplements on the, the market that help kind of make that conversion happen. So. Um, so it's mostly, again, just trying to get out of the body's way so it's able to do what it normally does. You know, there's a lot of those, you know, 
pre-workout supplements that have you know tons of L-arginine in them and you know, super nitric oxide booster. Well, you can take all the arginine you want, but if you don't have the enzyme to make the conversion, you're not going to get the effect that you want. Convert into citrulline specifically or convert citrulline sure. to nitric acid? Nitric oxide. When, when the L-arginine gets converted to L-citrulline, nitric oxide is produced in the, in the reaction. So why would someone take uh, L-citrulline supplementally versus L-arginine? They think they have a deficiency, and that's very rare that you would actually have a deficiency. But as far as like different ones, so like what we've always heard is that citrulline is a better precursor to nitric oxide than arginine. Is that and it's but it sounds like when when arginine converts into citrulline, nitric oxide is converted. So I just want to do you understand mechanistically what's happening there? Um, no, I probably would defer to to do a little bit more research to be able to answer that one. Okay, cool. Yeah, no problem. So um, moving on to the the dietary nitric oxide mechanisms, like understanding a little bit more about that. Because I think there's a lot of people out there, specifically with the carnivore diet, a lot of people who are missing these nitrites, right? And I'm curious how, nitrates, nitrites, I'm curious how you feel about um, just that in general, as far as its, its contribution directly to cardiovascular health. So, I mean, I think there are many patients who are doing, you know, carnivore diets, or they're also just, you know, um, experimenting with their diet and seeing how things, you know, affect their arterial system. And that's kind of the, you know, the great, uh, um, kind of debate, you know, is a carnivore diet heart healthy? Could be. So tests don't guess, you know, what are your arteries doing with that nutrition change? So, you know, get a good set of blood work before you do a big nutrition change. And then if you have access to it, there's different uh, non-invasive ways to test the health of your arteries and nitric oxide production. So if you do those tests and you have good nitric oxide production, uh, make the dietary change, you know, go full carnivore if you want. uh, And then, you know, reject, you know, 30, 45 days later and see, what are your arteries doing with response to that nutrition change? Does too much protein negatively impact nitric oxide production? Not that I know of. Yeah, interesting. I've heard I've heard some thoughts around it negatively impacting. I just wasn't sure what I would know mechanistically. Yeah, I don't have anything off the top of my head that would negatively do that. Okay, good to know. So yeah, good. That kind of refutes some of the, the theories I've heard. Or at least I'll do some more digging. Um, so walk us down some of your, uh, some more paths as far as what people can be doing to support this optimization of heart function, right? As, as you've seen, as we spoke about last time, there seems to be a really large number of people in our space, in my fitness space, having heart attacks. And, you know, there could be some, some talk around, as we spoke last time with the vaccine, um, there could just be obviously the kind of the idea of these, these uh, comorbidities existing. But I'm curious what you think as far as like best practices. I know you're obviously big on circadian biology, but what else should we be looking at as kind of a, the big levers to optimize heart cardiac function? So the first thing is just do a di- bigger deep dive into, you know, what are your true cardiovascular risk factors? Because most people know if they have high blood pressure, high blood sugar, quote, high cholesterol, you would know if you smoked and you would know if you're obese. Now, those are five risk factors for cardiovascular disease, but there's probably 400 risk factors. Mm. Now, the arteries respond to three major uh, insults. So they'll either you know, respond with oxidation, inflammation, or autoimmune dysregulation. And those will lead to ultimately the downstream endothelial dysfunction. So there are more um, advanced blood work that you can look at. There's, you know, five or six different inflammatory markers you can see, like how on fire is your body? You know, just looking at somebody from the outside, they can look very fit on the outside, but their arteries can be 20, 30 years older from the inside. Maybe that person doesn't sleep well. Maybe that person, you know, is a super hard charger and they never have a rest day. So their body's never able to recover. So just because you look fit on the outside doesn't mean that your arterial system is healthy. So start with a good, you know, history and physical, you know, 
you know, does that person sleep? You know, what is the nutrition regimen, all that, you know, circadian biology, but then do an advanced lipid panel with some inflammatory markers. And then, you know, my area of expertise is doing non-invasive testing to look at the arteries way before you actually have an event. You know, by the time you wait for somebody to have a heart attack or stroke, you know, you probably had 10 years before you could have intervened on that person. And unfortunately, you know, many people's first time that they have any plaque in their arteries is that they're having the heart attack. So, you know, the classic symptoms of chest pain, pressure, shortness of breath, you know, exercise intolerance, those are good, you know, red, you know, red warning signs that, hey, you probably have to be a blockage in your artery, you need to go get that checked out. And those are the people that, you know, when they do a stress test, either, a, you know, exercise stress test or a chemical stress test, they're likely going to fail the stress test. And that leads to intensifying their medical therapy, you know, potentially a revascularization with a stent or bypass surgery. But the people that, you know, you really want to catch are the people in their 40s and 50s who have no signs that there's any problem. You know, you want to go looking earlier. So the test that you would look at, are, you know, two that would look at the endothelial function. One of those tests is called an endopat. The other test is called a max pulse. After that is, you know, if the endothelium is impaired, you would look at how thick the walls of the artery are. If the wall of the artery is starting to get thicker, then there's more likely plaques can start developing. That test is called a carotid intimal medial thickness test, or CIMT. It's an ultrasound of the neck artery, and will give you a vascular age. This famous physician from the, the 1600s, Thomas Sintham, that had said, man is as old as his arteries. So again, you could be 45 years old biologically, but your arteries could be 65 years old. So you find that person and you're much more aggressive with their medication, supplements, and lifestyle, trying to stabilize that plaque so they don't go on to have an event. And then a test that many people, even in the carnivore world, are familiar with is the, the calcium score test or the CT coronary calcium score test. Great test. I use it all the time. You know, calcium is supposed to be in your bones. It's not supposed to be in the walls of your arteries. If there's evidence of calcifications in your arteries, that indicates that plaque is present. And the more calcium, the more plaque is present. But you can sometimes get fooled with the calcium score test of being zero because maybe you're just not that further down the pathway of atherosclerosis. So you have endothelial dysfunction. You're starting to get some vessel wall inflammation. You're starting to get some soft plaque. Those aren't going to get picked up on a calcium score test. It's going to be a couple of years for that plaque maybe calcifies. So there's a lot of people on the internet say, hey, I got a calcium score zero. I'm good to go. That doesn't necessarily ring true. You know, there's still you know, a chance that you have soft plaque uh, that could rupture and cause an event. Okay, so um, coming back just a, just a step, um, you mentioned all the endothelial function tests. I'd love to have you just walk us through them and then maybe have some best practices supplementally or otherwise to optimize that. So there's a couple of tests that you can do on your own. There's a couple that you would need a doctor's office to be able to get, you know, the, the, the kind of the quick and dirty ones at home or, you know, what is your normal blood pressure? You know, blood pressure is pretty much you know, a direct reflection to how much nitric oxide your body can produce. So if your blood pressure is consistently greater than 120 over 80, you know, you probably have some type of nitric oxide dysfunction and you got to go dig into why is that happening? So if you have normal blood pressure, you likely have, you know, pretty good endothelial function. There are also companies that sell nitric oxide salivary strips. You know, you put a dab of saliva on it and it'll change colors like litmus paper. If it's bright red, your body's making a lot of, you know, nitrates uh, conversion through your saliva pathway. So that's kind of the easy ways to do it at home. In the office, two tests I use. One is a test called the max pulse. It measures something called the pulse wave velocity. Looks like a regular pulse ox that you put on the finger to measure your oxygen levels. But as the blood leaves your heart and it goes through your blood vessels, 
You know, when it gets down to your fingertip, you know, if it's a healthy artery, it should expand and contract quickly. So I thought this is kind of like an accordion. So the artery should expand and contract real quick. If it doesn't, you know, and your arteries are like a lead pipe, the blood will race down there, bounce off it, and bounce back and reflect really fast. So the analogy is, you know, you're in the pool and you're splashing water on the, you know, the wall or whatever, and you see that water bouncing back to you. Well, if it comes back really fast, you know you have lead pipe arteries. Lead pipe arteries either have a lot of scar tissue in it, or they just don't release any nitric oxide, and they're just like really clamped down. The way you know if it's kind of permanent is you optimize their nitric oxide and their blood pressure improves and their pulse wave velocity improves. Great, you've kind of reversed at an earlier stage. The other test that I frequently will offer patients is a test called an endopat. Uh, it's non-invasive, it's a 15 minute test, uh, validated mostly at the Mayo Clinic uh, against some of the invasive uh, tests that we used to do. You know, we used to put wires past people's blockages in the coronary arteries and measure how you know severe the blockage was, you know, past the blockage, or I should say the flow past the blockage was versus the flow before the blockage. But unfortunately, uh, people don't have to have an invasive cat just to, to get this data anymore. So the endopat test essentially is a five-minute test where you're measuring uh, the flow in each fingertip. Then there's five minutes where you have a blood pressure cuff on your non-dominant arm and pump up the blood pressure cuff over their systolic blood pressure. So not uh, not dangerous, but you usually look at that pins and needles sensation in your hands. Um, and it looks like a little flat line on the monitor for that arm. After five minutes, you open up the blood pressure cuff, the blood rushes back down into the hand, and you'll get what's known as reactive hyperemia. That means that the small blood vessels, as they see that large volume of blood coming back, they'll have shear stress. That shear stress will cause nitric oxide to be released from those arteries. If you release nitric oxide, then the arteries will open up and the flow improves rapidly. And the test gives you a number. It gives you something called the reactive hyperemia index, or RHI. If your number is under 1.68, you have endothelial dysfunction. If you're less than 2.1, you're normal but not optimal. And optimal would be over 3 to 4. A 3 to 4 is not common, but 3 to 4 means that you know, your arteries are tripling or quadrupling in size when they're under stress. So it's a great test to tell people, okay, you are optimizing for your nutrition, your circadian biology, your uh, exercise, okay, keep doing what you're doing. Or if it's low, okay, these are the things you can support the body's ability to make more nitric oxide. So specifically on that test, is like just walk me through like the, the logic of it. So I, I, I block the blood flow into my lower arm, I release it, and as the blood flows in, the, the blood vessels dilate. And, uh, and so the ability to dilate extensively, that's what we're ultimately looking at. Like, so if it's like a 1.68, that's like you didn't dilate that much. So, or is it refractory time? Like what exactly are the, is it measuring? So it's measuring the uh, brachial activity, the brachial arteries, the artery that's in your kind of bicep going down into your forearm. Um, it's a pretty good surrogate for what's going on in your coronary arteries, the arteries that sit on the outside of the heart and provide nutrients to the heart muscle itself. So it's like a stress test for the arteries. So. And normally when you're exercising, you have to bring more blood flow to whatever uh, tissue you're trying to stimulate. So this is just telling you how well you can bring that blood flow to a, a tissue that needs blood flow. Would you recommend doing something like that on a consistent basis, almost to like train the system to produce more nitric oxide? Um, not particularly this test, but I mean, I think that probably kind of falls into the blood flow restriction type testing. Yeah, yeah. Or actually the blood flow restriction training. Um, yeah. It's something that is, that is kind of one of the... Um, the factors that is probably helping. I mean, part of that too is that, you know, it's affecting uh, lactic acid and uh, growth hormone when you do that type of training. Yeah, 
you do have to know what you're doing because if you do that stuff too tight, uh, you definitely can cause some necrosis or tissue damage. So you know, work with somebody who's done that stuff before, before going out, you biohack know, yourself with it. <laughs> totally. We've had one of the experts in the world uh, come on the podcast a couple of times. He's brilliant. He's a great guy. He's really kind of creating this entire business around it now. His name's Dr. Mario Novo. Um, so I'm, yeah, I'm curious, is there a, a negative potential there, right? If someone does have you know, this loose plaque that could potentially lead to an event, would they be a negative case? Like, should we should we be testing for someone to be able to to do these these blood flow restriction type training, or is it relatively safe? Um, not my area of expertise, but you know, it's generally really safe if you do it uh, within reason. You know, you're not, uh, you know, your hands not uh, you know, turning purple when you this type of uh, restriction devices are on. Uh, but yeah, what you said though, you're not necessarily going to uh, cause a plaque to rupture by doing this type of stuff. It's more that. And what actually tends to cause the plaque to rupture is inflammation and high shear stress. So, you know, if you have you know, really uncontrolled blood pressure issues or you're you know, high inflammation, those are the things that are more likely to cause these soft plaques to kind of pop like a, a, you know, a volcano. Got it. How reversible is uh, damage? I know we spoke about that a little bit last time. If someone's got some hardening, if they've got some soft plaques, is this something we can reverse or is this something we just kind of, we just kind of slow down? So the first goal I tell patients is that, you know, we help you prevent having an event, a heart attack or stroke. Because if you do some of these tests, it's pretty common to find some degree of plaque over, you know, if you're 40 years old or greater. You know, if you do a calcium score test over the age of 45 or so, six out of 10 people are going to have an abnormal score. So I'm not surprised when people have abnormal scores. You know, the people that surprise me are people who are under 40 and have really high calcium scores. You know, they got a score of 1,000. That's very abnormal. They got probably three vessel disease and might end up with bypass surgery. Or the other people that surprised me are people who are in like their 70s and 80s and they still have a calcium score at zero. Seen them a few times, it's great. They're just, you know, whatever they're doing is working for them. So don't, 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 don't mess with those people. You just want to find the sweet spot, the people who are at risk that you can do something about. But the first thing is, again, don't have an event. The second thing is that, you know, choose the right test to see is things actually improving. Uh, often people will get a calcium score test, they'll be abnormal. You know, the score will be 100, let's say. You know, have I seen scores regress or get better? I have, but that's not necessarily the goal. Sometimes some of the treatments we recommend to people will actually potentially drive that soft plaque into becoming more hard plaque. You're taking that soft, vulnerable, necrotic plaque that's more likely to cause a heart attack and you're turning it into a little rock on the wall of the artery that hopefully never causes the patient any symptoms. So if you repeat the calcium score test after certain treatments, such as long-term statin use, you frequently see the calcium score test going up and people think they're getting worse, but that's not necessarily true. You want to know, well, how healthy is their endothelium? Because that is really the name of the game. If they have healthy endothelium, then whatever is putting the plaque there in the first place, you've gotten hold of, and they're likely to at least kind of stop the boat from building up more plaque. And maybe over time, the body may be able to regress things a little bit. And the test in the middle is that carotid scan, the CIMT. If the intima is thick, that means that the wall is inflamed, you're more likely to keep adding plaque down. But if you see that intima shrink back down to normal, then you're going to hold the things and you're likely going to start regressing the plaque in the coronary arteries as well. So I never promote that you know, you're going to absolutely go from having blockages to no blockages. The goal is just don't have an event. And over time, we can see the arteries generally remodeling in a positive way. I may have asked this, but is there a specific marker on blood tests to see to, to test for endothelial function that we can actually see like objectively rather than obviously these tests are very good as well? So there's some ones that you can kind of uh, infer, but they're not uh, um, foolproof. So, you know, the, the test that you would look at uh, 
that almost anybody could have access to it. Most labs would be a, a urine microalbumin to creatinine ratio. It's a spot urine. So protein is not supposed to be in your urine. Uh, it's usually too big to get through the membranes of the kidney. And if you have urine uh, that has protein in it, typically it means you either have you know, uncontrolled blood pressure or uncontrolled blood sugar issues that are damaging the kidneys and causing that protein to be leaked out. You know, you could, there are some rare instances where people have nephrotic syndrome and they have a kidney disorder that they're, they're dumping protein, um, but you would pick that up. But the average person who's screening for it, if you have microalbumin or protein in your urine, it's kind of like having leaky endothelium to the kidneys. If those arteries are getting damaged, it's very likely also damaging your heart arteries. So that's kind of a red flag if I see people leaking protein, go looking for it. We explored the benefit. Oops, sorry again. I would say, and there's other tests. You know, there's ADMA and SDMA, asymmetric dimethylarginine and symmetric dimethylarginine. Um, they typically will correlate pretty well with nitric oxide production. So if you have high high ADMA, you tend to have low nitric oxide. Um, some things that tend to drive nitric oxide low is if you have high homocysteine. Homocysteine is the amino acid. Some people have a genetic issue where they just don't clear homocysteine very effectively, and that'll tend to drive nitric oxide down. So. So sometimes it's not that they need more supplements. It's just you have to fix certain precursors and then the body will make more nitric oxide. So those are kind of three big ones. ADMA, SDMA, urine microalbumin, creatinine, and then a homocysteine level. Those are pretty good starter points for nitric oxide from a lab standpoint. Yeah. So obviously we know that uh, aerobic exercise, cardiovascular type exercises are useful. Have you explored the benefits of, of certain breathing practices on cardiovascular function and nitric oxide production? So I haven't personally, um, but you know, I know there is some um, information about certain nasal breathing pathways that uh, you can stimulate nitric oxide production from the sinuses more if you're doing some like uh, humming type of uh, maneuvers that uh, resonates in the sinuses and then nitric oxide will be, uh, will be produced in that way. Um, I've not personally done it to, to play around to see if my nitric oxide levels get better with it, but I, you know, that's a free and cheap biohack for people to try. Yeah. So as far as measuring the result of that, would it just be the the mouth strips that you suggested or is it a urine yeah. strip that would be more accurate or are those going to give you different Probably, Yeah, more the, the little oral test strips generally would, yep. would give you that idea. Okay. And the idea there is to have higher nitrogen. Um, now, so obviously dietarily, that would be very visually apparent. But do you think the, the nasal breathing would actually reflect in the saliva? Most likely, yeah. Yeah. Huh. Very interesting. And so the, I've also seen, I believe, um, urinary nitrons, nitri, uh, nitrous, nitric oxide strips. Uh, any benefit? I haven't, haven't yet played around with those or seen them. Okay. Very cool. Um, so what else should we be, what else should we know? What else should we be diving into as far as understanding uh, cardiovascular function, endothelial function? Just really that it's, you know, extremely common that endothelial dysfunction happens when you have high inflammation, high oxidation. So check blood work and that gives you an idea like, okay, there's something going on with you know, your endothelium. Um, but sometimes the, the canary in the coal mine that, you know, guys of, you know, our generation, you know, why they present to their primary care doctors is, you know, they're concerned about erectile performance. And that's the canary in the coal mine is that if, you know, if you don't make enough nitric oxide to have an erection, uh, you likely are potentially going to have plaque building up in your coronary arteries as well. So, 
you know, it's sometimes a, you know, chicken and egg thing, you know, people present to their doctor asking for Viagra and you're telling them like, you're actually at high risk of a heart attack. You need to go down that pathway. We're always going to, you know, help you with your quality of life, but uh, the, the erectile performance issues uh, sometimes are a big red flag that something's going on in the coronary system. Hey guys, I interrupt this podcast to bring a special message from Biome Breakthrough. Our great friends at BioOptimizers have done it again. Biome Breakthrough is a revolutionary product to reestablish a healthy microbiome. If you're someone who's heard me speak or you've worked with me personally, one of the very first things, if not the first thing we're going to work on together is we're going to fix your gut. We're going to fix your microbiome. Why? Every single thing you consume is going through that microbiome and going through what we'll call this filtration-like system that ultimately determines how your body is using food. The best food in the world is only as good as your microbiome, your enzymes, your acids, ability to break down and utilize these things. So it's so important if you're not someone who's been paying attention to the microbiome. Microbiome is like the rainforest. There's so much diversity. There's so much that isn't known, but there are a few things that are known to be effective. And Biome Breakthrough has gone and looked at all the science and implemented all of the known effective practices into a single product. And you can get hooked up today for being a listener of the Muscle Intelligence Podcast for 10% off. Head over to biomebreakthrough.com slash muscle and use the code muscle10 for 10% off. You can get that link in the show notes or I'll spell it out for you. It's B-I-O-M-E-B-R-E-A-K-T-H-R-O-U-G-H.com slash muscle. Okay, talk to me about why circadian biology is so closely correlated with cardiovascular health. So there's you know, approximately 100,000 reactions happening in the body every second, and the greatest majority of them are all yoked to your light environment. You know, the cells actually use different frequencies of light to communicate with each other. It's not wavelengths of light that you see, but it's wavelengths of light that your mitochondria and the cells sense. So as humans, we evolved outside under the sun's natural powers. We weren't supposed to be inside 90% of the time staring at these screens. Now, these screens tell your brain it's noontime all the time, and you'll make different hormones when it's noon versus 9 p.m. at night. So to optimize your circadian rhythms, it generally takes two uh, things. One, it's controlling your light environment, and then it's controlling the timing that your nutrients come into the system. So timing of the nutrients is pretty easy. I usually tell people, when the sun's up, you can eat. When the sun's down, stop eating. You know, ideally, you should stop eating three to four hours you know, before bed because that actually will cause the liver and gut clocks to shut off for the night. But the way to control the, the light environment is really to use more sunlight and less artificial light. You know, the morning light doesn't have any UV, so you're not going to injure your eyes by going outside at sunrise. You know, get 20 minutes of morning sun, you know, naked eyes to the skies, as one of my you know, friends says, um, you know, that helps set your circadian clock for the day. You have a you know, something called the supercosmic nucleus that sits behind your eyes. And it's essentially sampling the color of the sky to tell your brain what time of day it is. And then the, that little clock tells the rest of the body it's daytime. So cortisol, you know, gets a bad rap sometimes, but cortisol is not all bad. You need a certain amount of cortisol to have alertness, to, um, you know, to go about your day for your mood and energy. But blue light from the sky is one of the things that stimulates cortisol. Blue light from your screens also will stimulate cortisol. And if you stimulate cortisol all day long, what you would do is you'll suppress melatonin. And melatonin is the hormone of darkness. If you're making melatonin throughout the day, it only gets released when it's dark. And if you look at your screen at nine o'clock at night and try to go to bed at 9.30, 
your brain's not going to have enough melatonin to actually repair the damage that's gone on through the day. So if you don't have enough melatonin, your mitochondria suffer while you sleep. The mitochondria are the organelles in your cells that make energy for you, and your heart and brain are the two organs that have the most mitochondria. So if you mess up your circadian biology, you can't repair your mitochondria, you're going to have more likely poor heart function. So what about people right now who are eating really well, maybe they're training really well, probably even sleeping really well, but are still having some of these expressions of negatively impact cardiovascular or endothelial function? What would be some of your suggestions? Maybe it's supplements, maybe it's biohacks. Uh, what are the ways that we should be taking action right now? You know, if, if I want to throw the full gamut at it, like I want to optimize this over the next five to 10 years, what should I be doing every day? Every day, number one, see every single sunrise to the day you die. The sun is that important in the morning time to set your circadian clocks. You can't recreate it with artificial lights. Um, when you're inside, protect yourself from the artificial light through the eye pathways. So, if, you know, if you're watching this in the video, I'm wearing a pair of blue blocking glasses that block out, you know, about 40% of the blue light coming off this technology that tells my brain that it's not fully noon all the time. About an hour before bed, I switch to a red pair of glasses, tell the brain it is nighttime, that lets cortisol drop and melatonin rise and get you ready to fall asleep. You know, then, you know, we did mention, you know, if you're already doing, you know, you're eating relatively clean, you're, you know, you're moving your body a few times a week. Great. You know, are you dealing with your stress? You know, there's things you can monitor your heart rate variability. So, you know, if you're a hard charging athlete and you're overtraining, you're going to have low heart rate variability. If you have low heart rate variability, you're going to end up with atherosclerosis sooner than later. So look at heart rate variability as a metric of pretty quick wins, like, okay, you've rest and recovered well enough. Um, and then, you know, if you really still have low nitric oxide levels on test strips and, you know, endopat tests, that's where the blood work might kind of push you towards, okay, this is the type of food stuff, you know, you might want to focus on more, or this is the type of exercise you might want to focus more on. Very cool. Um, that's awesome. You mentioned some supplements to me last time. One that comes to mind is vitamin K2. I've heard some people speaking about its miraculous ability to reverse um, arterial plaques. Any idea on the research there? For sure. So, I mean, you know, earlier I talked about, you know, the CT coronary calcium score does, you know, the, you know calcium is supposed to be in your bones and teeth. It's not supposed to be in your arteries. So what helps with calcium metabolism is vitamin D as well as vitamin K2. And if you're lower either on D or K2, the calcium doesn't necessarily go where it's supposed to go. So there is data on vitamin K2. There's an MK4 version and an MK7 version. The MK7 version is just a little bit better absorbed. Um, so vitamin K2, MK7 can help with arterial uh, plaques, uh, help first stabilize it, and also tends to put a thicker cap over the plaque, so less likely for it to rupture. So that's one of those instances where it's actually hardening it, even though we, we yeah, uh, my brain would go, well, I don't want it to harden. I want to get it. I want to go away from it. But you're saying that hardening, it's actually a good thing. It can be a good thing. And also I have seen, you know, um, when people have more mild disease, you know, doing this type of regimen, you know, I've seen the plaques, you know, fully regress and the artery thickness go back to normal. I never promised that, but, you know, that is potentially, you know, you get the, you know, the inciting agent out of the way and the body has an amazing ability to repair itself. But K2 can help augment that process. So is there such thing as doing too much with an oxide system? So you know, bodybuilders are taking arginine, citrulline, beetroot, uh, other, um, you know, organic nitrates. Um, you know, some of them are taking like Cialis pre-work, five, five milligrams of Cialis every day as prescribed by their doctors. Any thoughts on that? 
I mean, it, it's honestly, you know, if you want to go deep down the rabbit hole, it's it's the other stuff that's in the supplements that might be the problem. So, you know, there's something called deuterium. So deuterium is heavy hydrogen. So a lot of the supplements and food stuff that are, you know, artificially manufactured are going to have higher levels of deuterium. So hydrogen is an extremely um, important compound in the body. You know, your protons, you know, you, you know, when you eat, when you actually eat food, you know, you're not eating carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. You know, what your mitochondria actually do with it is they strip that stuff down, the fats and the carbohydrates into protons, hydrogens, and electrons. And they run the electrons through the electron train transport and they make ATP on the other side of it. But if you put deuterium into the system, the deuterium basically plugs up the mitochondria's ability to make energy efficiently. And a lot of the supplements have high levels of deuterium. In. So they're probably you know, getting some benefit with the nitric oxide, but maybe they're loading themselves up with too much deuterium and they're making less energy in their cells because of that. So we had Dr. Laszlo Boros on the podcast. Mm-hmm. If you know him, he's, he's one of the main guys in deuterium research from the Center for Deuterium Depletion out in Santa Monica. And uh, so if you want to go down that rabbit hole, he says, don't drink water, don't eat vegetables, only eat meat if you want to decrease your deuterium. And so in that, in that you know, breath, maybe the carnivore diet is the best way to go if deuterium is in any way implicated in cardiovascular health. So, I mean, that, uh, um, so I'll disagree with him on that part that, you know, you should only eat, you know, animal proteins and fats. I mean, you know, he has some metabolic issues that he's trying to personally reverse. So he has his own little regimen for that. But I did not know him personally, but I've listened to a lot of his podcasts and I know some of the people that. So he was just talking from a low level of deuterium. He's like, Mm -hmm. vegetables Mm -hmm. are loaded, water's loaded, don't consume them, just have meat. Right. And so, I mean, the the story of deuterium is that it depends where it is, where it's bad. When it's inside your blood vessels, it's actually beneficial. But when it's inside the mitochondria, it's bad. And deuterium is, you know, heavily loaded in breast milk. Kids use tons of deuterium to grow. Deuterium is kind of something that helps things grow. So when plants are making fruit, they're dumping all their deuterium into the fruit. The fruit drops to the ground. The animal runs, eats the fruit because it's sweet. They eat the seeds. They go poop the seeds out. New plants grow. So deuterium helps things grow. And you want to grow when you're young. You don't necessarily want to grow when you're older. You know? So cancer has an issue with too much deuterium in the wrong places. So this is the reason why a keto diet can be beneficial depending on what latitude you're at in the world at that time of year. So keto is neither good nor bad. It's completely individualized to where you're at on the world at that time. And so a keto diet, you know, in an area where you have true winters, you would not have had access to fruits and vegetables. You would have only had meat and proteins and things. And so you would have had a lower deuterium diet in the wintertime. And then in the summertime, you would have had a higher deuterium diet. UV sun helps your body clear deuterium. Sweating helps you clear deuterium. So deuterium is not necessarily always bad. It's just bad when it's in high levels in the wrong places. Got it. Okay. That's great. Um, So one thing that comes to mind is, and I'm not sure this would be an area of expertise, but I love an opinion. So when we train with heavy resistance training, we're obviously putting a, a more significant amount of pressure amount of load through our arteries as well as our muscles and there's these different types of of obviously uh, neurological responses to obviously a heavy resistance-based training as compared to a repetitive cardiovascular low impact type training and i'm curious how you would suggest um just kind of framing those like is there a potential negative effect of too much resistance training on someone who's got you know, or, or someone, someone who's wanting to optimize their heart function. So, you know, it comes to mind, we're lifting really heavy, we're creating a lot of intra-abdominal pressure. 
And, you know, there's been some suggestion that if too much of that, as far as like percentages and ratios of the work we do, could be negatively uh, implicated in heart conditions. So and not necessarily so much for the coronary arteries, but definitely for the aorta. So the aorta is the main blood vessel that leaves the left ventricle. Um, there are people that have dilations of that aorta, or it's kind of enlarged compared to uh, a baseline. And doing heavy shear stress activities, you know, heavy deadlifts and you know squats and such, puts a lot of shear stress on the uh, the aorta. Is the blood trying to be ejected from the heart, and you might you know potentially with that shear stress start dilating out the aorta faster. So somebody who has an aorta dilation or a history of aneurysms of the aorta, they probably do need to be much more careful on the extremely heavy lifting. It's not a contraindication to do any exercise, um, but doing that, this extremely heavy lifts would need to be uh, tapered. Uh, and I've only had a couple of patients where I've had to tell them like, you really can't do those type of activities and where you got to go to do and, you know, more body weight type things, you know, even, you know, um, you know, if your blood pressure is generally well controlled, it's not as big a deal. But, um, but those are the people that you know if they have a family history of aneurysms or you know they've had an echocardiogram and the aorta is dilated. Those are the people that need to kind of be more careful on the on the super heavy lifting. Very cool. Um, so, if you were in my situation right now, asking you questions, is there anything that we would have missed? Is there a specific thing that you should that I should be asking that I'm not? Mostly that. Uh, you know, how important the light environment is compared to your food environment. Everybody wants to focus on food. And, and honestly, the food wars kind of get boring over time. I mean, food is important. Food is information to your system. But in the grand scheme of things, you know, food is stored up light energy. You're either eating a plant that photosynthesis created, or you're eating the animal that ate the plant. That's how it works. So you have to control your light environment if you want to have optimal health. So um, I would focus on circadian biology, then food. Awesome. Now talk to me about red light there because we discussed that a little bit last time you said you do suggest that to some of your clients. Sure. So uh, red light therapy, uh, more uh, correctly called now is photobiomodulation or PBM. It used to be known as low-level light therapy or low-level laser therapy. So if you do research on you know, PubMed, you might just want to go look for LLLT or PBM. But Essentially, it's something to help the body recover faster. So there's different wavelengths of light that these uh, devices have. Generally, they're in the red spectrum or the infrared spectrum. And the ability of the light to penetrate the cells um, is something that causes dilation of the arteries. So it helps bring blood flow to the tissue that's been damaged. It lowers pain. It decreases swelling. And then the way that you know an athlete would use it is they would use it before they exercise. You're basically putting energy into the mitochondria before you go exercise. So you have uh, increased athletic performance by not having to uh, uh, fatigue as fast. You're basically putting energy in the cells without having to eat more food. And then it also is beneficial after exercising. It really decreases the delayed onset muscle soreness. So uh, you can use it almost like uh, a cold bath, you know, it would help lower inflammation. So you're able to recover faster so you can get back to the gym and, you know, do better luck next time. Are you an advocate of saunas and cold therapy for the, for cardio, specifically to cardiovascular function? So two separate things. So definitely on sauna. I mean, the, the Japanese have a lot of data on using sauna treatments, you know, three times a week for patients who have cardiomyopathies, weak hearts or high blood pressure. So it does a couple of different things than red light therapy, you know, uh, but it does stimulate, um, nitric oxide production that helps with structuring the water in the cells that helps with detoxification pathways. Um, and you know, it is something that, uh, has a lot of data for those things, you know, cardiomyopathy, weak heart or blood pressure. But I sometimes tell people, you know, uh, photobiomodulation and sauna, they're like 
the differences between AM radio and FM radio for people still remember radio stations. Yeah, they're just different frequencies, and they just you know your cells are turning into different frequencies. To, to, I should say tuning into different frequencies, so you do a little bit different things. Dr. Michael, that was action-packed. Tons of amazing info. Where can our audience learn more from you? So I'm pretty active on Instagram. My handle is Dr. Twyman, D-R-T-W-Y-M-A-N. And website's the same, drtwyman.com. Um, I do a Monday night Instagram live, generally talk about some cardiovascular topic or health span promoting topic. Um, so if you want to find me there, it's Instagram or my website. Amazing. We'll definitely link that in the show notes. So thank you so much. There's so much value in that and a lot of really actionable things. I'm sure the audience can take away and apply right now. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. And that's a wrap. Ladies and gents, boys and girls, thank you for tuning in to the Muscle Intelligence Podcast. And uh, ultimately, thank you for sharing this podcast with every man out there over 35 because cardiac function is real. And we want to make sure that um, we're supporting each other. At the end of the day, sometimes it feels like a lack of reliable information. So I think when you start to understand the scientific mechanism behind it, and then what exactly influences each mechanistic outcome, you can start to go, oh, I need this and I need that, right? So decreasing stress is a great idea and protecting your your uh, your reds, right? Ultimately, your your red vegetables or your your beets, your berries, your, your Organifi red, things like that is so important to improving the endothelial function, to improving the uh, nitric oxide systems to allow your body to function well. And we want to continue that as we age and stay away from processed foods, stay away from fast foods. Those things are only doing harm and damage. And ultimately, guys, you got to decrease inflammation. So if you're consuming things that you know are inflammatory, get them out, get them out. We do, we do many podcasts on that as well. So thank you to Michael Twyman for being here. Thank you to Organifi for sponsoring the podcast. That's O-R-G-A-N-I-F-I.com slash muscle. You get hooked up with 20% off greens, reds, golds. Get them all, try it once. I guarantee you won't, you won't regret it. Have a great day, guys. Thank you for being here. Thank you for always subscribing to the podcast. Go ahead and leave me a review. I want to hear from you. Let me know what you loved about the podcast or what you didn't love. Have a great day. Thank you so much for tuning into Muscle Intelligence. If you enjoyed today's episode, please be sure to share it with at least one person you know. Make sure you're subscribed so you never miss an episode. This podcast is for information purposes only. The statements and views on this podcast are not medical advice. This podcast, including Ben Pikulski and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements or advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest and products or services referred to herein. If you think you have a medical problem, consult a licensed physician.